0: We're up to chapter 3, Mishnah 21, and today we're going to cover Mishnah 21 and Mishnah number 22. We already spoke about this great towering figure, Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria. he was the one who became, at the age of 18, he became the leader of the Jewish people after Rabbi Gamaliel was deposed, and we're going to read through his two teachings, and then we're going to dissect them, very, very interesting teachings that we have here. Rabbi Lazar of Omer, Rabbi Lazar, the son of Azariah, says: "It ain't Torah, ain't derech heretz. It ain't derech heretz, ain't Torah. If there's no Torah, there's no derech heretz. Derech heretz means the way of the world, which can mean a lot of different things. It ain't derech heretz, ain't Torah. If there's no derech heretz, there is no Torah. It ain't chachma in yira, it ain't yira chachma. If there's no wisdom, there's no fear of God. If there's no fear of God, there's no wisdom. It ain't das, ain't bina. If there is no knowledge, there is no insight. It ain't bina, ain't das. If there's no insight, there's no knowledge." If there is no flower, there is no Torah. If there is no Torah, there is no flower. So there's four things, or four groups of things that are mutually dependent. You have to have one and the other, because if you have one without the other, you don't really have it. Okay, that's the first teaching. And then Mishnah number 22, who, Haya Omer, he would also say, Someone whose wisdom exceeds his good deeds, to what is he compared? Le ilan Merubim muatam to a tree whose branches are numerous, but whose roots are few. and a wind will come and uproot it and turn it over on its head. Shenemar quotes a verse in Jeremiah, Kaarar he shall be like a lone tree in the desert, Tove, and he shall not see when good times Come, Vishakhan Kharir and Bamidbar, he shall dwell on parched soil in the wilderness, Eritz Melecha, a salty land, Velo so Saisha. this is describing a lonely tree, really in a barren world and very vulnerable. Aval, however, call shemisha marubmachmasso in the event where someone has the, the opposite, their good deeds exceed their wisdom. Lemahudoma, to what is he compared? Le of Muatim. To a tree whose branches are few, but whose roots are numerous. So, because they have so many roots, it's very strong and it's impervious to all kinds of threats. Even if all the winds of the world come and blow up against it, it would not make it budge from its place. Shneimer quotes a different verse in Jeremiah: "And he shall be like a like a tree planted." Near the water, val yuval and along a stream spreads its roots, val a and he won't notice when heat arrives, vahaya its foliage will be fresh, and even in a drought, he won't worry, valo yamish and will not cease from yielding fruit. Okay, so these are the two teachings from Rabbi Elazar ben Let's try let's try to dig into them. So it begins, im ein Torah in derecheretz, im ein heretz in Torah. You have to have Torah with derecheretz. Derecheretz means the way of the world, and it can mean a lot of different things. It can mean a worldly op- occupation. It could also mean good behavior, good character. When someone has good character, it's told they have derecheretz. They, they're behaving in a proper way. The commentaries of this Mishnah are voluminous, and therefore every variant of the definition of derecheretz is manifested in the commentaries. The commentary that I want to follow is the commentary of Rabbein Yona, where he talks about the relationship of Torah and character. Meaning that Derek Herz in this context is having good character. So he says, uh, if, if there's no Torah, there's no fine character. Someone cannot have refined character without Torah. Why? So he explains, because the Torah guides us to have good character. You read, for example, this passage of parasha, we read about the mitzvah of doing what's right, doing what's just, doing what's proper in the eyes of God. And there's many mitzvahs. The whole Torah is telling us all the good mitzvahs that we should do, uh, how we should behave towards other people, do kindness, do charity, not take revenge, all the mitzvahs that are guiding us to, to be good people. And therefore, if someone does not have Torah, they don't have the guidance, how could they have... The sterling character. And I want to add maybe another, another wrinkle to this. Suppose someone does have ethics. Someone does have morals. Someone's a good person. But they don't have Torah. It seems to contradict with this mission. Now we all know people that are, you know, that, that, that are moral, that are upstanding, that are righteous, that are good. So what's this idea that you have to have Torah? And I think that maybe we could, we could say, we could suggest that, you know, there's a difference between Torah and wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom out there. When we say the word Torah, we're explicitly referring to godly wisdom. We're, refer- we're referring to absolute wisdom. We're referring to some wisdom from the highest realm, some wisdom that is immutable, wisdom that's inflexible. If it comes from God, it doesn't matter what we think. And I think what it's telling us is that it's not just enough to have wisdom, that wisdom has to be so concrete, it has to be from Torah, and only then can someone be sure that their good character will not be overridden by the circumstances. Someone could have good character, but you know what? Today's a bad day. Today, I'm not feeling it. Today, could be a little bit, you know more sharp, a little bit more biting. Well, if someone has Torah, the Torah has to override everything. Torah's like, okay, listen, I'm in a bad mood, but so what? It's Torah. I cannot override that. And when it, when we're saying, if there's no Torah, there's no Derek heretz. what it means is, is that if someone only has derech heretz, if someone only has good character, it could be sterling character, but if it does not have the oomph, the power, the immutability of Torah – then there's going to come a point in time where there's going to be a conflict between their character and something else. And unless they have Torah, only then can could, could they be sure that their good character will always shine forth because the good character is rooted in the absolute. Whereas if it's rooted in the relative, it invariably under at least some, some kind of circumstances, it will be fickle, it will be subject to be swayed by circumstances. So that's the first idea. What about the next one? If there's no deracherets, if there's no good character, there's no Torah. Well, why not? Why can you have Torah without good character? Good character maybe is rooted in Torah, but why is Torah rooted in good character? So he says another fascinating idea. Rabbaniona says that Torah, again, is not like any other wisdom. Torah is godly wisdom. Torah is wisdom for the soul. Torah is wisdom that can only flourish in a certain kind of vessel. If you don't have someone who is righteous, someone who has their someone who is a moral upstanding person, someone who does have impeccable and sterling character, someone like that is not an appropriate, a fitting vessel in which Torah can flourish. And secular disciplines, you could have people that are good people that are, ex- you know, excellent physicists, and you can have people that are bad people that are excellent, excellent physicists. And here we're told an idea, the Torah is not like that. It's not like any discipline, You have to have, you have to kind of earn it on a spiritual level as well as an intellectual level. And what is the spiritual rites of passage of Torah that is impeccable character? And my grandfather had a line that he said, that Torah is godly intellect, but it can only dwell in someone who has already perfected themselves as a human, as what we would say, as a mensch. You have to be a mensch first in order for to- Torah to reside, so to speak, within you. The Talmud tells us that Torah is compared to water. There's many things Torah is compared to. Uh, torah is compared, for example, to bread. We'll talk about that in a little bit, actually. Torah is compared to water, compared to oxygen, various uh, verses and, and, and statements in the Talmud. What does it mean that Torah is compared to water? So There's many explanations of what that means. Water gives life and Torah gives life. But the Talmud says that water always pools at the lowest available point topographically. So if you have water raining raining down on a mountain, it's going to pool down in the valley. Because it just follows gravity. Similarly, Torah is going to pool in someone who is humble. When you lower yourself, you make yourself humble, that makes you a fitting receptacle for Torah. Again, a similar idea that the character that you have that you develop makes you a better vessel to acquire and to harbor Torah within you. Now there is an interesting question. You know, the mission says we need to have both. If you don't have this, you don't have that, you don't have that, you don't have this. So where do you start? Right? If I need Darakereetz to get Torah, and I need Torah to get Darak Heretz, well, there's no way for us to start. It's an interesting question that the Maharal asks. And the, maybe the the easy answer is that it has to be complementary. You know, you have to have your Torah and your Derech Heretz at the same time. When you simultaneously are constantly upgrading your Torah and your Derech Heretz, that's the proper way. Whereas if you try to go too much in one area, then it's not going to be successful. It has to be accompanied by a parallel advancement in character. So as you grow with your Torah, you have to grow with your Derech Heretz in tandem. And maybe we could suggest that, you know, there's two kinds of Torah. You have Torah, which is intellectual Torah. I want to study Torah because it's fascinating, because it's interesting, because it's stimulating, because it's intriguing, because it's historical. There's a lot of reasons why you can study Torah. And there's another way to study Torah because it's teaching me how to live. It's guidance from God to how to properly maximize the opportunities that I have here in life. How to live life to the fullest. And that kind of Torah study, it's Torah study that has with it derech eretz. It has with it guidance for how to live your life, and what it's telling us maybe is that the Torah and and the, and and the derech eretz they're actually sisters. They 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 are part of one pursuit, and a Torah which is divorced of uh, of derech eretz. Derech is divorced of Torah. Those two are they're incomplete. And the proper kind of Torah and the proper kind of derech is when you have the other, the other component together. It's like if you're missing the component, you're not really, you're not really getting it. Meaning they're not they're not diverse fields, but actually the two of them together are one. That's another way to understand it. So that's the idea of the uh, association between Torah and derech And then we read about imein chachma ein yira mean yira ein chachma. wisdom. Married with fear of God. So I want to point out that in Scripture we find the idea, in fact, this passage of we talk about the, the idea of fear of God. The Ram tells us that all of our connection to God can fall under two categories, love of God, fear of God. And I think there's a, a, a very basic point here, and that is that our connection to God, it's not theological. It's a relationship. And every functioning relationship is a combination of love and fear. Now, fear has a negative connotation. And Ramchal already writes that fear means seriousness. It means gravity. That's what it means. It means that it's a real thing. Every successful relationship has to have... These two components, love and seriousness. For example, you know, if you're married, hopefully you have a lot of love between you and your spouse. But there is also some sort of contract. There's also a certain degree of gravity that really cements the love. To have the love without the seriousness, without the contracts, without the commitment, you can't really have it. And the commitment without the love, that's for robots. The two together, the love and the fear, the love the emotion, and the rigidity uh, of the institution of marriage, so to speak, those two create the relationship that could flourish. And here we see the same kind of idea. Wisdom, it's kind of like connecting to God in a, in a very, uh, I would say, love vector. And then we have the fear of God, and that's connecting to God in the other way. And those two together create the relationship that is ideal between man and God. There is an amazing statement here by the Chassid Yaivetz. Chassid Yavits is, uh, my grandfather used to say, is the best book on Pirkei on chapters of the fathers. And it's also, from my experience, the most difficult book to study. Because it is written, it's written like a, a terms of services, very dense you have to read it really slowly. You have to read every sentence twice to understand what he's saying. Now, he was someone who was part of the Spanish expulsion. He was, he grew up in Spain, and him, together with his family, they fled when they were given the choice convert to Christianity, die, or leave. So they left, and we know historically that many Jews left, but roughly the same amount of Jews left as the amount of Jews that stayed, that remained, and some of them actually converted. Uh, some of them who were lucky to be part of the aristocracy were allowed to live as the Jews. And many, many, maybe most of them tried to juggle both of them. Uh, most of the time, it didn't really work out. So he has a line here where he says, you have a, you know, with this idea of wisdom and fear of, fear of God, a seriousness. He says, you have someone who's wise, but he's really not wise at all. And you have someone who knows nothing, yet they truly are wise. And he tells us we saw a woman who gave up her life and died and did not renounce her relationship with God. She is the truly wise one. Whereas we saw someone, and this is in quotes, who was really wise. Ostensibly, but the truth is, he wasn't wise at all. He was knowledgeable, but he wasn't wise. And again, this idea that your knowledge—it's not yours unless you marry it with a certain, with a certain a fear of God, with a certain seriousness, with a certain gravity of making it really with you. And he's, he's invoking the fact that there was someone who was ostensibly very wise. They knew a lot, but when push came to shove, they weren't able to act upon their knowledge because their knowledge was separate from who they really are and thus what it's telling us is that it's not about how much you know that doesn't make you wise it's about how much you internalize that wisdom that is the true wisdom and we have this woman maybe she knew nothing but you know what she was wise because her wisdom actually resonated within her it was true it was real and she acted upon it and this other guy we don't know if this person, is. it's a tantalizing uh, story, but uh, of course a very traumatic time in our history, but he's someone who witnessed it. He we saw it. We saw this woman and we saw this other guy. And we compared the two. One of them hadn't knew a lot, one of them knew nothing. But she was wise, and he was not wise at all. The next the next two themes are if there's no knowledge, there's no insight. If there's no insight, there is no knowledge. So the commentaries all point out. This would gets very tricky. Uh, Because we read about Torah, we read about wisdom, Chachma, we read about knowledge, which is Dat, we read about insight, which is Bina. And it seems like there's three different types of intellect, one called Chachma, one called Bina, and one called Dat. Wisdom, insight, and knowledge. And all of the commentaries have their own way of differentiating between these three different types of intellect. Here we're seeing they're all mutually Uh, interdependent but what exactly constitutes wisdom what constitutes insight what constitutes knowledge all the commentaries have their own way of explaining what these are so for example Rebbe he says wisdom is what you learn from other people insight is how you understand via comparison two things you can compare from one domain to another domain and knowledge is what you understand on your own uh so again it's it's not clear exactly what the demarcations are between these different kinds of wisdom but he says there's three different types of intellect intellect is not one solitary thing it's it exists at least on three different planes but i i think the general lesson here is that you have to have insight married with knowledge what it means is is that the the, the magic happens when different types of intellect are married to each other you know when someone has a very deep Thinking, but that's also mixed with maybe a little bit arduous, tedious calculation. We know calculation and, and, and depth of thought are some are, are, are disparate domains. But marry those two together, take different types of intellect and, and and try to rendezvous them and see what results. That's really where the magic happens. I think that's so that's a way to understand that. And finally, the interconnectedness of Torah and food. What does that mean? And now, like we, um, you read the the ver, you, re- you read the Mishnah. It doesn't say food in general. It says flour. Now it doesn't say bread. And the commentaries ask the obvious question: Is that shouldn't they have said if there's no Torah, there's no bread. There's no bread. There is no Torah. So uh, before we understand um, that, before we dig into that question, I think the 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 insight is like this: You know, we need food or else we die. That's just the human condition. We're not angels. And therefore, you want to have Torah, you have to have a certain degree of physical sustenance and nourishment, or else you can't possibly concentrate on Torah. If someone is not well fed, if someone does not have their, uh, Maslow's hierarchy tended to, if, they're, if, if they don't have shelter, if they don't have water, if they don't have food, if they don't have the base it's covered, you can't really have Torah. On the flip side, If you just have the basis covered, if you just are worrying about your physical needs, but you don't have Torah, if there is no Torah, there is no flower. What what value does life have if you're just focusing on the flower, so to speak? You're not all focusing on the Torah. The Torah is trying to make you identify with your soul, to think about the big picture, to think about eternity, to think about what you're living for. Those kinds of questions are really what life's about. And of course, you need to have the flower to have the Torah, but if you don't have Torah, what value does your flower have? There is no flower. There is no life. You're, you're perpetuating your physical body. You're divorcing it from your spiritual soul. And does that really is that does that really constitute life? If there is no Torah, there is no flower. The Maharal has a very long essay on this mission. A very long. I, I want to uh, uh, stress that it's uh, it's quite wordy, as he is wont to do. Uh, and he says like this. He says, you know, Torah. And, and, and bread here are presented as parallels. And this is a theme which is uh, quite widespread in Jewish philosophy. The idea that we exist on two planes. We have the body and the soul, and they're fused together. But just as the body has its realm, its rules, its needs, its agenda, the soul also has an agenda. It also has rules. It also has its needs. And we know the body needs food, it needs water, and needs shelter, it needs oxygen. The soul, similarly, needs those things. However, just the body's nourishment is physical, the soul's nourishment is spiritual. And here, the maral says, but again, it's a theme that is found all over Jewish literature, Torah is to the soul what bread is to the body. Bread, of course, gives the body life. It gives the body vitality. It gives the body continuity. Soul is fed also by spiritual bread, which is Torah. The Torah gives the soul life. It gives the vitality, it gives it continuity. And here we see that the body and soul cannot exist independent of each other. If there's no Torah, there's no there's no flower. If there's no flower, there's no Torah. A human only is the fusion of the two. If you have the body with the soul, the soul with the body, neither of them can exist. Now we ask the question. Why does it say flour and not bread? After all, you don't eat flour. Flour is processed into producing bread. So he gives three answers. The first, first answer is a Kabbalistic idea. That flour, it's something which is very uh, fine. And that is more intellectual, whereas bread is more, uh, it's more coarse and it's less intellectual. That's his first answer. I, I don't really know that. what that means. Let's put that on the side. And then he says, another interesting idea, the Talmud tells us that the are Hara, the evil inclination, is similar to the yeast, to the leaven in the dough, in the bread. When you have flour, you want to make it into bread, you have to add the leaven, you have to add the yeast, and then you have to bake it to produce the bread. The Talmud tells us that in this process you have uh, a, an analogy to the Eitzahara. evil inclination. It, it's it's comparable to the leaven in the bread. Now, what that means is a separate discussion. I think we've talked about it in the past. But Torah, says the Maharal, it's the antidote to the evil inclination. And therefore, if you compare something to Torah, you can't talk about bread because breadery has leaven in it. And the Yetzirah is compared to the leaven and therefore... With the Torah, which is the, the anti-eight sahara, that gets rid, so to speak, of the leaven, and therefore you can only compare it to flour. And then his third answer is the answer you've been waiting for. And that is like, that is as follows. We know if you have no bread, you have no Torah. Why? Because if your stomach is grumbling, if you're malnourished, you're undernourished, how could you possibly concentrate on anything else? You need to focus on your food. You're able to study Torah. What if someone has bread? They have bread. So they have a meal. Today's food is covered. But if they don't have flour, what does that mean? That means that tomorrow's food is in question. If someone does not have, does not know how they're going to feed themselves tomorrow, then they still don't have the peace of mind to study. You have to have bread for today and a little bit of flour, a little bit of breathing room. You're going to have to have tomorrow's meal covered as well before you can have the peace of mind necessary to study Torah. If you just have bread, you just have food for today, maybe if you're really a special person, or really someone who really relies on God, you're like the Baal Shem Tov who made sure he cleaned out his house every night. There was nothing left. Rely on God. That's for special people. Regular people, you have to have a little bit of a security, a little bit of a rainy day fund. You have to have a little bit of flour, not just to cover the bread of today, but the bread of tomorrow, maybe a couple of days of breathing room, only then you'll have enough peace of mind to be able to properly study. And then he adds, it doesn't say you have wheat. Because wheat, it's its stored for, you know, for months. A flour is stored for weeks, maybe. And bread, of course, is for today, and then it starts already to uh, to entropy, right? If you just have bread, it's not enough. If you have, if you're waiting till you have tons of wheat in the storage houses in the granary, you're waiting too long. You're asking for too much of a security blanket, too much of a rainy day fund. When you have flour, it means you have a few weeks maybe or a few days of food covered. That should give you enough peace of mind to be able to study properly without uh, being too concerned about the future. If you wait, if you stick around and say, I'm, I'm waiting till I have a year's worth, two years worth in the bank before I can even think about studying, you're waiting too long. You can know you have, you have flour, you got some meals taken care of, and you can rely on God for, for everything else. Uh, just quickly, the final teaching that he taught, uh, comparing us to a tree, and our roots, so to speak, are the actions, our behavior, and our branches are the wisdom. So the idea, uh, the motif of of a human being similar to a tree, is found in all places in Jewish literature. So, for example, Tihah Adam Eitz We read in Deuteronomy chapter twenty, verse nineteen: "Man is like the tree in the field." So this idea that we have part of us is is hidden it's underneath the ground subterranean the roots and that you don't see all you see is what's you know exhibiting forth above the ground so the idea of us having this dual existence an internal existence that's hidden from other people an external existence that is revealed to other people moreover the insight that we learn over here that our Wherewithal, our abil- ability to withstand the challenges is not a product of what is visible to other people. It's the roots that are hidden that determines how strong we are, how uh, resolute we are to be able to withstand the challenges. And we see that the actions, those are the roots. You would think the actions may be that's, that's revealed. No. The actions is how someone behaves when no one's watching. That really is your actions. Those are the roots, the, the the things that are invisible to other people. That truly determines how secure and stable your tree is and how it could resist and, and, and stand strong when the winds come. The branches, those are the things that other people see. That is the wisdom. That's how you behave when other people are watching. And I want to add another point here. Uh, two more points maybe. First of all, It seems like that the ratio of roots to branches matters in relative terms, much more than in absolute terms. You could have a huge tree, and it has a lot of roots, but not enough roots to sustain such a big tree. Whereas you could have a small sapling, or a small little bush, and it has fewer roots than the tree next door, but because what is exhibited above the ground is also smaller, the roots can support such a tree. So it's not about having the most roots. It's about having relative to what you show, make sure that what you don't show, what you truly are, what you truly are is at least equal or greater to what you exhibit to other people. That's the first the first idea. But moreover, uh, maybe this is the whole secret of the Mishnah, he brings a verse from. He brings two verses from Jeremiah. One talking about the tree that maybe stands big and tall, but doesn't have the environment to flourish. It's got it's 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 parched. It's it's uh, a salty uh, terrain, etc. And then you have the other tree, which is rooted deeply. It's got the good water source, and no matter how many a year of drought comes, it's still yielding fruit. And that's the bottom line. The bottom line is the word of the tree. But ultimately, we're trying to produce the fruit. And yes, the roots are great. And yes, the branches are great. And we want to make sure that the branches do not exceed the roots, because then we're vulnerable to being to being uh, overturned, uprooted, and 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 destroyed. But the fruit—that is the takeaway. And we would say maybe that the 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 lesson here is that we're we're a tree and our life here is to choose how we manipulate that tree but the end goal is to try to produce the fruit and when we talk about the afterlife the afterlife is the consumption part right it's it's it's, it's that that proverbial fruit when it actually can be actualized that's in the world to come we're the tree. We choose where we want to situate our tree. We choose what we're going to focus on. We choose are we going to make sure that it's strong, it's stable, it's got deep roots. Or are we going to try to promote ourselves, have lots of branches but not really have the roots to hold that and all that determines the kind of fruit and the robustness of fruit that we yield? A very powerful, very deep idea. Again, shared with us, courtesy of Perkyavos of Chapters of the Fathers and Rabbi Elazar ben We are nearing the conclusion of Chapter 3. We have one more short and very interesting Mishnah, and uh, that will bring us halfway uh, through the six chapters of uh, Chapters of the Fathers. It's been a wonderful joy, and I'm glad to be back and look forward to next Mishnah.